So we finished our first day of practice together. And I'm guessing there's all kinds of different experiences we're all having right now. Exhaustion and ecstatic joy and everything between. And one of the things that um, we always bump up against in spiritual practice whenever anybody says anything like, you know, reflect on basic goodness. We can use any instruction to beat ourselves up. Oh, I don't have basic goodness. I don't know what happened to it. Or uh, my basic goodness is bigger than your basic goodness. So we uh, always have that problem of turning any spiritual instruction into some ego trip, something about gain or loss. Tonight I wanted to talk about generosity and that experience of the generous heart in practice, really giving ourselves to the moment, giving ourselves to experience. addressing the issue at hand, you know, whatever is arising for us. And I, it occurred to me that it'd be very easy to use this also as a way to judge ourselves, to judge our practice, to hit ourselves. I think it was Ayakema said something, um, sort of summing up some of the teachings of the Buddha. She said something like, we have to give ourselves totally with no holding back. And it can seem like that means we have to force something to happen. A lot of the practice is learning how to give ourselves fully or how to be generous. probably, you know, just in looking back on our lives, we can probably do a pretty good job of remembering times when the heart felt relatively open and generous, kind, and then just to reflect, well, was that experience, that experience weakening? Did it weaken the heart? Did it undermine happiness in some way? Or was it strengthening and uh, enlivening, healing? And same thing, we could remember all the different times of stinginess, close-heartedness, hatred and judgmental attitudes, and then remembering, you know, how was that? What was the effect of those moments, weakening or strengthening? We can remember the times that we were so impressed by somebody encountering a really difficult life circumstance and seeing somebody model that full engagement, showing up completely, 
that generous presence with that difficult situation. It can be so impressive when we see somebody handling something that we feel like I couldn't handle that or I don't want to have to handle that. I'm so glad that's not happening to me. And then we see somebody in that really difficult situation uh, and you know the beautiful qualities are flowering in that situation for them. You think about times when you've seen that, like how impressive that is and how powerful it is to see somebody in a really difficult situation with a lot of beautiful qualities flowering. Patience, clarity, fearlessness, sense of humor, and generosity. I've seen people who were near death finding a lot of joy in thinking who they were going to give things to. You know, just that in the midst of letting, having to let go of everything, losing everything, finding some real joy, happiness, and thinking, oh, this person would really appreciate this. They're going to have a good time with this. They'll like having this. So as we continue our retreat together, we can use this, uh, you know, we all know something about generosity. And so we can use what we've learned over the years and, and then let it translate into the present moment. Like what is it, what would it be now in this moment to be generous? You know, gen generously present with the body, generously responsive to the body to the moment. It's really, as I sometimes talk about in the loving-kindness classes, it's a different movement in the heart. You know, our normal movement is what I need. It's that pulling in toward the sense of self, the needs of the self. And generosity is that opposite mo uh, movement. And outflowing or that giving away. It's like uh, some of you, I think, were at that program that Miyoshin Kelly taught in earlier in December on a Thursday night on compassion. She did a two-hour workshop, I think, on compassion. And she taught the Tonglen practice. Some of you know that. It's a Tibetan Buddhist practice where you breathe in exactly what frightens you and you exhale, you give away your gold, you give away your strength, you give away your love, you give away all your goodness. So you take in all the darkness, all the fear, and you give away all the strength, all the stability. And you can see, I mean, who knows what that does in terms of benefiting other beings. But you, we can see directly, immediately, when even when we hear about it, let alone when we cultivate this reflection, this meditation, it's like exactly opposite of our self-important, self-protective patterns. You know, where we're always trying to protect ourselves. Like even when we're around people that are a little needy or a little, you know, acting in ways that 
um, remind us of our own patterns. <laughs> like when I think about what really pushes my buttons, when my wife does something what really pushes my buttons, it's when she acts in ways that I also act, but I don't really want to see my behavior being reflected back. Like I don't want to, it frightens me to see it in another person, just like it frightens it me when I see it in myself. So to have the sense that not only will we sort of tolerate it, but that we're going to take it off their hands. We're going to breathe it in. And then we're going to give away any security we have. So this sense of exposure to different, to different relationship to the world where normally in the world we're trying to feel secure and safe and here we're cultivating the experience of vulnerability. You know how they, in the Buddhist tradition, they divide up or they categorize the levels of generosity, sort of meager generosity is when you give the worst that you have. You know, you have a few things and you give away the one that doesn't look so good. Yeah, I don't really want that one, so I'll find somebody who can use that. And that's a kind of generosity, but it's, you know, it's not very enlightened. And then there's a friendly, they categorize it as a friendly generosity where you have a bunch of stuff and you share equally. Like, oh, there are three people. Well, let's divide it three ways. And it's relatively fair. It's like, uh, I think it was last night at the table when we were eating those cookies and Stacy broke one in half. And I said, now the person who breaks it in half they let the other person choose which half they want. <laughs> so that's in the area of friendly giving, you know, where we're all in this together. We'll divide it up. When we go backpacking, you know, you may carry the food, but the other person carries the tent and somebody else carries the cooking gear. And you work it out in that way. And that's sort of a friendly kind of generosity. But we're really moving in the direction of a a more noble kind of generosity. I think it's called royal generosity or queenly, kingly generosity, where you're really working this edge, giving away the best that you have, giving away what you don't want to give away. And that's just an interesting place and something we can explore on the retreat. In all kinds of ways, little ways, big ways, you know, holding the body still when we could move, it would be okay to move, but we hold it still as a, an act of generosity, like we're giving, a, giving away our freedom to move. Or, you know, we could go back for seconds, there's nothing wrong, there's food there, but we give that away. So this practice of renunciation, you know, like wanting to snuggle in the bed and have a nice nap, and we can give that away. So giving away those things, not to be mean to ourselves or to cultivate a sense of tightness, but to explore the beauty, the richness of letting go. And especially when there are, 
you know, a sense that somebody else will benefit or somebody else can use it. Or that our steadiness is a real support for other people. It's like uh, whether we like to know this or not, how we are on the retreat affects everybody on the retreat. I mean, we all know what it's like when we see somebody who seems really clear and relaxed, how it inspires our practice. And <laughs> let's be honest, we know what it feels like when we see somebody who uh, is caught up in some way, like uh, in an aversive state. Now, we're all, we all visit all of those points along that range from sort of being really caught in our stuff to being relatively free and alive and relaxed and clear in the moment, in the experience of the retreat. But it all matters. So the, this practice of generosity and this goodness of the heart, this basic goodness, it really moves in the direction of wanting to take care of everybody, wanting to take care of ourselves and wanting to take care of everybody. And the sense, too, that we share the, we're all in the soup together. So who we are, how the mind is, the kind of thoughts we're indulging, the actions, all of this is our field of generosity or stinginess. Sort of our life and our mind and our actions, this is the expression of stinginess and generosity. And it's, you know, I don't think it would matter if we were in a cave somewhere. And that's often how we think, well, I can, I can be a little greedy, I'm just eating my meal alone. You know, nobody will see me stuffing my mouth or, you know, walking around with the bowl in my hand, listening to the radio and doing some other task. But it's nice to have a sense that it matters all the time. And especially when we're on retreat, you know, to cultivate that attitude that it matters whether we're in the room alone or out in the middle of the group. This, this way of practicing, like I mentioned right at the beginning, it does lend itself to judgment. So you have to be really attentive that you're not using the sense of responsibility, the sense of responding to the moment, responding in a beautiful way in the moment. That's really what that responsibility is, is to be contributing something beautiful in every moment. You know, the beauty of our goodness, or the beauty of our good wishes, or the beauty of our composure, our steadiness, our calm. So, hating ourselves for being a terrible failure isn't a great contribution. <laughs> if that's, you know, we think we deserve scolding, 
But is that really what we want to contribute to the world? You know, the sense that I should be punished for being bad. I haven't been a good retreatant. What would be a beautiful contribution if we really blow it? I mean, whatever that might be, you know. Well, understanding it, you know, understanding how it couldn't be other than what it was, given all those causes and conditions, that understanding would be a beautiful contribution in the moment. Oh, yeah, of course. Of course, you know, I spent the last hour obsessing about Downton Abbey and, you know, <laughs> why they made this choice and or whether I should be watching it or whatever, however... You might be obsessing, <laughs> speaking for myself. <laughs> I mean, nothing teaches us more clearly about cause and effect than watching something and whatever attachment is there, whatever, whatever moments there are when we're like watching a movie or a TV show and the mind isn't perfectly clear, that those moments leave a trace in our mind. And so when you go on a retreat, all of those moments of unfinished business, all those traces, if you're, if you have some, if you're not at that moment adding more traces, <laughs> then those other traces that were added in the past will percolate up. And it shows us this, oh, there are consequences to engaging in things that are provocative, that trigger attachment or constriction of the heart and mind, there are consequences. And it doesn't mean we shouldn't watch anything, but we should be really clear what's going on. But this talk isn't about <laughs> not watching TV. It's about being generous and, and connecting the experience of generosity and renunciation the generosity of letting go with that goodness of the heart that we learn to trust. And then, then just this, uh, this joy. I mean, that's the, we really want to connect a sense of joy with this letting go of renunciation so that in, as we're doing the retreat and then when we go home, there's a sense of how can I contribute in this moment and how can I contribute in a way that uh, isn't stingy I'm not holding back or at least I'm playing that edge getting a little bit outside my comfort zone in terms of what I'm contributing in the moment and you know we immediately go you know contributing money to the people who don't have enough to, to feed themselves or something but we really want to open up the idea of what contribution, what the contribution might look like or be. Because generally speaking, giving money is one of the easier ways to contribute. Patiently enduring something that's not easy to patiently endure, that might be a lot more of a contribution. You know, like when we're around somebody and they're talking, and we have all the subtle and not so subtle ways of telling them, you know, I want to be out of here. I'm done. But sometimes it might be appropriate to really give them our time 
the time that we are there to be really there 100% as opposed to being on the fence like I'm here only because I can't think of a way to get out of here. You know, that's like a stingy way of being. So if you're going to be there, maybe as long as you're going to be there, maybe you should really give the person what they need. They need to feel like they belong, that they can be included that their life has meaning. So we can try, you know, we can make make that our practice to be generous, to to access that basic goodness, which is also fearlessness. Because that generosity of the heart, that goodness of the heart, it really has to arise from a, a place of fearlessness. Because as long as fear is dominating the mind, then the gravitational pull is the opposite. It's like toward my need, towards what I need. So when we're responding generously to the moment, then there's fearlessness. We have a sense of being able to take care of what needs taken care of. So our, um, the obstacles for this kind of giving, renunciation, contributing to the moment, adding something beautiful, the, the problem are these effluents, these outflows of the mind, sometimes called taints, cankers, um, corruptions of the mind. And uh, these are just the deep grooves we all have. So Pema Chodron mentioned one of them last night, this deep groove towards sense experience, that a beautiful, pleasant sense experience is going to change the game and make me happy. And it's that promise that's never kept, but we were endlessly seduced thinking that, boy, if I can just make it to the end of the night and get in my bed, it's going to be okay. Or whatever, you know, whatever, make it to the end of the retreat, make it to the end of the talk. So we have this idea of some sense experience that will be the ticket. And as long as that seems important, we're not going to be interested in exploring this generosity of the heart, like responding to the moment with generosity, doing something beautiful in the moment. And remember, we're always including ourselves in terms of the recipient of the beauty of the good act. There's the outflow of wanting to become somebody, wanting something in the future. And that's such an intoxicating outflow, and it gets our attention. I see that a lot, like even when um, my mind is experiencing insight and experiencing real letting go, then that lightness that arises, the freedom that arises, if there's any attachment to that, then there's like a, a movement towards like becoming, wanting to set things in motion that 
you know, further the practice or wanting to set in, wanting to share the practice. The Buddha even talks about this imbalance when people have some insight and they desperately want their parents to start practicing or their friends to start practicing or their partner to start practicing. But it's an imbalance because it, it's like this exuberance. Ajahn Mahabhua calls these the exuberances of the heart. We are under the influence of the exuberance of the heart. The heart doesn't know what to do with the heart energy. So it feels like you know, it needs something, needs to become something. Not content with things being the way they are. Not meeting the moment because we're so enchanted with the idea of who we could become or what this world could become, what this situation could become. I see this a lot, you know, like a kind of restlessness. I'll show up at Common Ground with a long to-do list, but it's like dabbling just is so much fun, putting this away, taking care of that. And it's really uh, an aversion to contributing in the way that in this moment the heart is meant to contribute, you know, doing what needs to be done. It's really an avoidance, but it can look very light and generous, but it's really avoiding what needs to be done. And then there's the outflow of ignorance or wrong views. You know, just the idea that uh, this moment doesn't deserve my contribution, or there isn't anything I can contribute to this moment. That's probably a more common expression of ignorance. Not, Not believing there's anything positive that can be done in this moment. We can't contribute. There's no way for us right now to contribute to our well-being and the well-being of others. Isn't this a common thought? You know, I'm, I'm not in the mood or I'm not really in the right space for that. But, you know, opening up to not being in the right space is a great contribution. You know, getting clear when we don't want to be clear, when we want to indulge in dullness, that's a great contribution. This is from Stephen Levine's book, Gradual Awakening. He wrote it a long time ago. He says, The nature of the mind is such that when awareness presents uh, when awareness is pre- present, it displaces the, the kind of grasping that breeds frustration. We cannot have awareness and grasping active at the same time. They don't fit in the same space. When we're not mindful, when we're identifying with the thought, which is forgetfulness, the opposite of mindfulness, we spin out. When we're mindful, each thought arises and passes away to be followed by another There's no stickiness. So when we're mindful of anger, it won't stay. We don't suppress it. We don't act on it. We're just mindful of the experience and watch it come and go. Mindfulness is the most powerful agent we have for purification because it cultivates non-grasping in the mind. It's interesting that in Buddhist thought, they don't speak of cultivating loving 
lovingness so much as developing uh, non-hatred. They don't speak of letting go as much as encouraging non-grasping. When those unwholesome qualities of hate and greed aren't in the mind, the natural state of loving kindness and generosity is revealed. When there isn't hatred, the love that is always there in wisdom, in the wisdom mind, becomes apparent. And this really gives us a sense of how to contribute in the moment. You know, if we are willing to see and then release the identification with the negative states, the outflows, you know, the various expressions of greed and aversion, ignorance in the mind. It's such a powerful thing. We should really see this as, you know, we we have the uh, people like uh, uh, Bill Gates and Melinda Gates and Warren Buffett who have contributed billions of dollars to big philanthropic organization. And it can seem like, oh, next to that, you know, whatever we contribute is nothing. But what is really of value in this world is this clarity, you know, the, the willingness to see the aversion in the mind for what it is, not to be fooled by it, and to drop it, to drop the identification, to not be seduced. And to really see that as like a, a stunning gift. Like even with our partners or our friends, you know, something happens, we could react, we have every reason to react, to kind of pick it up, to gossip or to what, you know, whatever we might otherwise do. But to find just the right way to express, to contribute wisdom and kindness in that moment. Even if the person never sees it, like even you see somebody in the dining hall and they lift their fork to their mouth and a bunch of the food falls off of the fork and makes a mess, falls in their lap. In, in like in that moment, both the person who who had this happen, but also anybody who sees it, there's so much that can be done of real value in that moment. And I'm not even talking about like giving them a napkin, but just how we hold that whole thing. And you you know we can't control our mind, so the mind might think, oh what a dunce or something like that. But then what do we do with that? One of the reasons I thought about this theme for the retreat, reflecting on the goodness of the heart, this basic goodness, loving kindness, generous heart, 
because people, you know, we generally like the this. It sounds like uh, easier than being mindful or having insight. I don't know if it's actually easier, but there's there's something really engaging about love, about kindness, about generosity. I think because we know, we have a lot of confidence already that it's right, that it's the way. Like whatever the way is, it's got to involve kindness, generosity. It's like, does anybody still think the way involves stinginess and meanness? <laughs> I mean, we, we probably have that pretty deep, that, that the way, if it's really the way to happiness, it has to involve kindness Patience, generosity. So I think the the work then, you know, and the reason why it makes so much sense as a theme for a meditation retreat is that we need to go from the superficial to the here and now so that we're not thinking about kindness abstractly, generosity abstractly, but we're seeing that these movements of the heart the movement of kindness, the movement of generosity, that this is something that's relevant, not just at sometimes, but it's relevant all the time. And, it, and actually, it's interesting for the mind. It's really enlivening for the mind if we can just hold it there, like not be seduced by these outflows of some sense experience or something we want to become or we can really maintain this reflection, like, how might generosity look now? Or how might kindness look now? How can the wise heart respond in a kind and generous way now? What would that look like? How is it possible for this heart to contribute something of real beauty, of real significance in this moment that will forever change how everything unfolds. And that's another way, powerful way, to reflect on our actions, our thoughts, our words, that whatever we're doing now, however we're relating to the moment, whatever the mind is doing, it is setting something in motion. And as the Buddha says in one of his talks, there is nowhere you can hide Nowhere where a person can hide where that effect from that action won't be experienced. Because once something is set in motion, it will have its effect. Now, I'm not, I think it's too simplistic to say that I'll be the recipient of the, you know, because it implies we know who I am to begin with. But what we can say is you can't do anything in this universe without there being consequences for that action. There are no actions without consequences. Being passive so as not to make any mistakes will have huge consequences. <laughs> and freezing up because we can't take the responsibility is also going to have huge consequences. Engaging life and making mistakes and learning for them has consequences. So there's no way to avoid the consequences. 
But what we can do is we can have a sense of, of consciously owning our situation as a living being with thoughts, words, actions, knowing that we're contributing moment by moment by moment to this soup. You know, one way I've heard people talk about it, I don't think it has any, I mean, I don't think anybody really knows how this all works, although it seems like a lot of people speculate. But uh, about, you know, karma and cause and effect. But one way to think about it is that our negative actions, you know, our actions that are coming from a stingy place, tight place, setting in motion, reinforcing that tendency of tightness, maybe won't land in our life, in this life, but some being, some living being will be the recipient of whatever we have reinforced. And we can say for sure it won't be us, because even if there is this continuity of life after life, whoever that recipient is, it doesn't really make sense to say it's me or you. It's just going to be some Joe or some Jane, you know, who has a life, who has a particular tendency in their mind, because somewhere, somehow, it was set in motion by a living being, that tendency to be stingy or to be mean or to be disconnected or deluded. Now, that makes us a little bit more responsible, I think. It's like, somehow, we don't mind if we screw up our own life, but when we realize that, who knows? We don't know who's going to be the recipient of whatever's being set in motion. It's just like, you know, if we were aware when we threw the plastic bag in the ocean that, you know, there's going to be a fish someday that will get caught in this bag or something like that. Well, boy, it's such a powerful incentive to do something else than to set in motion the conditions for suffering. like when we think about our actions on the planet. You know, it's so easy to, when and I have speculated, wondered about whether we should build a garage at our house, you know, thinking, oh, someday we'll be really old and it might be nice not to have to scrape the windshields or have a nice garage to put in. But, you know, it means putting more concrete down on the planet, you know, and taking out plants that don't want to be taken out. And who knows how many creatures will be affected in all of that, let alone our purchases. So this is the world we live in where our actions have consequences. And we can let the responsibility make us tight and then interested in denial and distraction because we don't like that feeling of tightness, or we can let it break our heart which is really, I think, the direction we want to go in. We want to let the world break our heart over and over again, this sense of responsibility. Because it reveals something that's really uh, that's beautiful and enlivening. That we have to break out of this stingy cycle that we're in, this self-protecting, self-important cycle. 
Because all that does is set in motion more of that, more of that stingy, tight, self-centered stuff. Here's a few quotes from the beginning of Sharon Salzberg's book on loving-kindness, which I have just grown to respect more and more. It's just such a great manual on all the teachings of the heart. So I'll just read a few paragraphs. She says, uh, in referring to the story from the time of the Buddha about how he taught the loving-kindness practice to some monks who were practicing in a forest that was haunted. And the, the, the beings there, the <coughs> subtle beings there, didn't want them there because they couldn't stay. I forget exactly what was going on, but it wasn't respectful for them to be around when monks were practicing. So they had to leave their homes, but they didn't want to leave their homes for a long time, so they decided to create some stench and scary sounds to get the monks to move away. But the Buddha said he knew psychically that they need to practice in this forest in order to develop their practice. So he sent them back, but he sent them back with loving kindness. And Sharon's co comment about this story is, the inner meaning of the story is that the mind filled with fear can still be penetrated by the quality of loving kindness. Moreover, moreover, a mind that is saturated by loving kindness cannot be overcome by fear. Even if fear should arise, it will not overpower such a mind. When we practice loving kindness, we open continuously to the truth of our actual experience, changing our relationship to life. Loving kindness, the sense of love that is not bound to desire, that does not have to pretend that things are other than the way that they are, overcomes the illusion of separateness, of not being part of the whole. Thereby, metta, loving-kindness, overcomes all the states that accompany this fundamental air of separateness, fear, alienation, loneliness, and despair. All of the freeing, all of the feelings of fragmentation, in place of these, the genuine realization of connectedness brings unification, confidence, and safety. So it's one of these great paradoxes. You know, when we give away our safety, we find safety. You know, when we give away the self-protecting tendencies of the mind, when we allow them to cease, when we put them down, when we don't believe them anymore, don't believe that they're for our well-being. It's a real turning point. You know, we're probably all somewhere in the middle of this turning point where all of our self-protecting, self-important tendencies, we kind of believe and we kind of mistrust. Like, maybe that voice isn't actually supporting my well-being or anybody's well-being. You can think about times now where you're, or places rather, where you're pretty good at catching that self-importance. I mean, I see this a lot in my relationship with Wynn, where the, you know, the voice <clears throat> that wants to judge wants to complain, seems so right. And I may not be able to help myself, but I'm less and less believing 
that it's right. It just I know it feels right, you know, but I don't really when I see it, I don't believe that it's useful. And I know I have a lot of respect that I may not be able to dodge it, you know, I may end up saying something I wish I, I wouldn't say or doing something I wish I wouldn't do. But I don't pretend that it's for actually protecting me. Acting out in that way is not self-protecting. It's destructive for me, for the relationship, for the other person. I see this over time and time again. Or when um, defensiveness gets triggered, you know, I feel insecure. And, uh, you know, and how I behave out of that insecurity. I know. I wish I didn't have to act it out. I know it's not helping me. It's not helping anybody. So we can, you know, start there, be honest in that way with what we see. When we're willing to, you know, let go of our self-protection, be more generous, then even though it's scary and insecure and uncertain, and even though there's a lot of humiliation, because now we're actually seeing things as they are, instead of relying on denial and delusion to keep things covered up, that movement itself is so healing and as I've been saying, such a beautiful contribution. Some of you might have run into this poem by Roger Keyes. Um, he says, he has this line near the end, it says, it matters that life lives through you. And the whole poem is about just this invitation not to close doors, but to let things move. And this is especially true, you know, as a generous way of living, like letting life move through us. I remember reading um, about the Aboriginal people in Australia, and um, they have this teaching that the world is here to take care of us, but that's not enough, that each of us, we have to figure out how to let the world take care of us. So we have a responsibility. And that's, that's that sort of uh, feeling of generosity, like we're receiving something, but we have to figure out how to make this beautiful. It's like all the ingredients are here for something really beautiful, this moment, not just generally or theoretically, but even this moment. And you see what that does for our practice, for mindfulness. When we have the sense that there's something really beautiful here. And it's just <coughs> waiting for the last ingredient, which is what this heart brings to it, like how this heart is going to see or relate to the moment. You see, it really evokes a sense of interest and wonder and maybe creativity as we have this confidence that something beautiful is afoot. Just nearby, very close. So how to set it free or how to release it. I use this a lot in my practice. You know, whether I'm sitting with some 
energetic, something that feels like an energetic block, you know, something, some energy stuck, some difficult mind state. And uh, often initially, there's sort of, you know, a waking up, oh, I should be, I should practice with this, which is a little off. And then what, what brings that initial movement of practice, which has a little bit too much of weight, too much trying, and it what really brings it into line is this reflection that uh, it's really a movement of faith or confidence that freedom is already here and now, or love is already here and now, or something beautiful is already here and now. So then, then the way of practicing is basically coming in alignment with that faith. Instead of, you know, normally, initially, our practice moves always have something to do with fear or aversion or control, trying to get somewhere, greed. It's just, we can't help it. But that's okay, it gets us in the game, gets us in the moment, and then things are alive, nothing's set, right? So how we're practicing can evolve, can unfold. It just needs some direction. And that's really the point of this whole theme for the retreat. You know, sometimes, uh, I'll, you know, for a theme, I'll talk about right view. Well, this is just a way of talking about right view, talking about basic goodness, talking about generosity. Because it, having that idea, that sense of generosity, of goodness, and that inherent goodness... It's that seed of faith. Because otherwise we tend to think I'm bad and I have to go someplace to be good. And it's that practice move that has created, you know, what the Buddha would call these endless cycles of samsara. So long have we been cycling through, missing the point that our tears we've shed would, could have filled the four oceans. And it's because of this we're, we know enough to know that we need to practice, but we let the practice come out of the delusion of separation and the fear of separation and the greed of separation over and over again. So we recognize we need to practice, but then we need we need an injection of right view. And one of the most successful ways for that is to remember basic goodness because what it what it changes is a sense that there's already something here that's beautiful so maybe this instinct to go somewhere else to get away from what's bad maybe i don't need to do that maybe i'm just not paying attention enough or not paying attention in the right way maybe there's something already here and it really evokes a deeper mindfulness or listening or a more full release of our defenses, our self-important, self-protecting defenses. Because freedom doesn't need to be put together in any way whatsoever. Love doesn't need to be put together in any way whatsoever. It's like that quote I read from Stephen Levine. It's more about what needs to be put down, you know, putting down the striving 
forget who it was mentioning, you know, about apple trees or so many examples in nature about how they're willing to receive fully and give fully. We have so many examples of this. There's this teaching from the Buddha. He gave his son Rahula about being like the earth. His son, like an eight-year-old boy at the time, a novice monk. And so the Buddha, talking to his, this young boy, try to be like the earth, Rahula, for by doing so, when agreeable or disagreeable contacts arise, they will not invade your heart and stay there. Just as when people drop clean things or filthy things or excrement, urine, spittle, pus or blood on the earth, for that the earth is not ashamed, humiliated or disgusted. Now that's, that's a really powerful teaching. He's not saying, you know, never poop, <laughs> never make a mistake, you know, never have anger, never have greed. He's saying, when you encounter your greed or somebody else's greed, your anger or somebody else's anger, be like the earth that isn't ashamed, that isn't taking it personally. The earth doesn't take it personally. When somebody does something really beautiful, the earth doesn't take it personally. When somebody does something really disgusting, the earth doesn't take it personally. with this uh, teaching. Uh, I don't know if anybody here is in the Sutta study group. I guess Jenny is. Anybody else in the Sutta study group? So, oh yeah, Kevin. So uh, we have a monthly Sutta study group and uh, Gail Iverson was there at the last one and she had been on the six-week retreat uh, at IMS. A number of our community members, including Jenny, were there this last fall for the part of the three-month retreat. And during that retreat, she did a practice of faith. <clears throat> and, uh, you know, faith is some, comes out of some recognition of basic goodness, whatever that experience is for you. But when we have some experience of basic goodness, then we have the seed of authentic faith. Because it's not enough to have, it's not really faith, to hope something is true. That probably would be better called hope. I hope there's a heaven, or I hope, you know, that when I die, oh, something good will happen to me. But faith or confidence arises because of what we've directly experienced. And then it's actually faith because however much we've experienced, that resonates in the heart, in the mind, as being true. And so that truth coming out of our direct experience can counter all the ideas my mind might create, like, well, maybe this, is, this other thing is going to happen. Well, well, remember, you had this experience. This happened. You saw that. You experienced that directly. So how could that be true? Well, yeah, maybe, I'm, maybe that's not true. So... Gail, based on her own experience, 
wanted to remind herself of her faith. So she did something. She put together some phrases and then she repeated them throughout her retreat. Sometimes in walking practice, you know, sometimes at the end of the day. So here are her phrases. And you can come up with your own version. I have faith that the seeds of liberation are present in all living beings. Therefore, I have faith that the seeds of liberation are present in me. I have faith that the understanding of the Four Noble Truths, which is basically suffering and freedom from suffering. I have faith that the understanding of the Four Noble Truths and the practice of the Noble Eightfold Path lead to liberation and the end of suffering. I have faith that I am practicing to the best of my ability in this moment. And then she mentioned that sometimes she changed that last line to say, I have faith that we are practicing to the best of our ability in this moment. Now that's a, what a wonderful contribution. You could, we could all do this all day long tomorrow. You know, each of us in different moments, just a sense of either our own practice in that moment or the group's practice in that moment. I have faith that we are all practicing to the best of our ability in this moment. And to have faith that the seeds of liberation are present in all of us right now. So when we run into people, you know, even really people who are really miserable, to, to have that sense that the seeds of liberation, of real happiness, real love, real release of the heart, that they're present in that person. They may be covered up. The person may lack faith or any sense, any intuitive sense of that possibility. But that doesn't mean we can't intuit it or discern it. And that's also a real contribution. I remember, I'll just end with this point, um, just as such a powerful aspiration for me, and I feel like I'm such a beginner at it. But I read something once on leadership. And... uh, the person had such a simple and powerful definition of leadership, and I'm just badly paraphrasing what the person wrote, but it was something like, you know, a true leader is able to be with somebody, see somebody, and see those beautiful, see the potential of that person. That's what a leader can do. And not get confused by, you know, the presenting personality defects <laughs> or that we might that might be there or that we maybe are just imagining which is what we tend to do with people you know we we define them in different ways based on our own conditioning but wouldn't that be amazing i mean i i have feel fortunate to have been in a few relationships where i felt that where i felt like somebody could really see that in me i remember that with joseph goldstein in a few interviews that was so helpful in how he interacted with me and just seeing you know, his confidence in uh, you know, the capacity of this heart to be free or to see what it needs to see. It's really empowering when we're around that. And so that can be our gift too, to be spreading these seeds of faith as Gail practiced.
I'll post these on the bulletin board um, if anybody wants to model your own after some of the things that Gail said. So let's just take a few seconds and let go of the words. I have faith that we are practicing to the best of our ability in this moment. Walking practice. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.